0: Let me invite you now uh, to open your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 8, and we're talking today uh, in our series called Biblical Foundations for Change. If these verses master your life, you've got a good start. Uh, Your roots have been sunk deeply into the soil of grace. Uh, At the same time, these verses are packed with powerful truth that may be blinding. Uh, I can remember once driving on the 95 going west towards Summerlin Parkway when the sun was setting. And the bright glare was so bad, I had to literally stick my head out the window. Because I didn't have sunglasses. I forgot them. And I had the, sh- uh, the little car visor down to block the sun. But it was just blinding. I couldn't see anything. And, you know, going at 80 miles an hour down the night. Yeah. <laughs> you need to be able to see, right? So I had my head stuck out the window looking at the white line. Trying to figure out which lane I was in. And I was blinded by the light. Totally. And the truth in this passage may be blinding to some of you. It may be a little overwhelming. But uh, if you are one who has been in the Reformed tradition for a long time, you will hear nothing today that is really new. But if you're a person who's kind of new to it, and you're kind of looking at us like, I don't know about these people, this passage may stir up within you some questions. But that's good. But I want to tell you the most encouraging words you will ever know in your life are found in this passage. Uh, One that is almost familiarity can breed contempt if we're not careful about the truth here. So here now, the word of the Lord, as we read in Romans chapter 8, I have often said that if I could only have one chapter in the Bible and everything else was taken away, I'd pick Romans chapter 8. Uh, Because of its great comfort. Beginning in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray that as we take a look at this incredibly deep and comforting passage, that we might have teachable, responsive hearts that are like the servant that says, Samuel says, Speak, Lord, thy servant heareth. And we pray that we would sit under the Word today, not over it, trying to make it say what we want it to say, but rather under it, and let it shape us in the way you want it to shape us. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the goals of the Christian life, and probably the preeminent goal of the Christian life, is that we are to be conformed to the Lord Jesus Christ. A great sculptor was once in his studio, and he had this huge block of marble. And uh, he was commissioned out of this block of marble to chisel out and form and shape A stallion, a beautiful horse. And so he sat, and you could just see him looking at the block. And some passerbys walked up and said, What are you going to do with that marble? He said, I'm going to chisel away. He said, inside that marble is a stallion, and I'm going to set him free. And they said, well, how are you going to do that? He said, I'm going to chip away everything that doesn't look like a stallion. And when I'm left, what will I have? A beautiful stallion you have been marked out you have been set apart you have been chosen you before the foundation of the earth have been loved by god and you are set apart to be conformed to the image of christ and it is guaranteed to happen from eternity to eternity God is in the business of transforming and changing and shaping and contouring and polishing and shipping away everything in us to inside out transform us into the beautiful image of his son and if you think about the image of Christ the humanity of Christ Uh, We are to become like him in the beauty and glory of his humanity. He is what Martin Luther called the proper man, the ultimate image of God. And that is the end for which we are destined. Whoever claims to live in union with Christ must walk as Jesus did. And in the incarnate Jesus, we see one who lived with an undivided heart before God. All of his actions, every single moment, were done out of love for the Father and in submission to him. He committed himself to serving God's purposes, and he did so in utter and complete dependence upon God. He was bold in prayer. And he submitted in meekness to the divine hand. He participated wholeheartedly in the community of God's people, putting others' interest above his own. He lived a life of purity, integrity, wisdom, faithfulness, and love in thought, word, and deed. He took delight in the things which God delighted in and expressed joy at the Father's goodness. He was likewise grieved by the things which grieved the heart of God. The fallenness of the world made him deeply sorrowful. The portrait could be expanded, of course, but even this picture shows us something of his glory. We live a robust human life, and we are to be imitators of Him in His humanity. Where we are unlike Him in any of these ways, we are to become like Him. As Paul said to the Philippian church, your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ. And so, we, according to God's Word, have been set apart For this wonderful, glorious advantage of being made like Jesus in every way. Now Paul doesn't give these verses to us out of thin air. They just don't poof uh, and appear to us magically. They are in the middle of an argument he's making in Romans chapter 8. Where he tells us that our location, speaking of where we now live, is uh, in the times that are called in-between. We live in a time of suffering, and in a time of hardship, and in a time of trial, anticipating glory, which will ultimately be ours. But the present life that we have is filled with groaning. Paul tells us uh, in the prior verses that creation groans. He tells us that the Holy Spirit groans. He tells us that we ourselves groan under the tension of living with what we already know and have in Christ. And what we not yet experience in a daily way. But he gives us these promises. When reality in our lives sometimes doesn't match up to our expectation. He gives us promises to hang on to. And so in these verses, Paul tells us that God is absolutely and unequivocally determined with all of his godness to do for us that which is good, that is good according to God. His idea of what goodness is. And that tells us that everything that touches our experience is brought through the sovereign hands of God ordained by Him, filtered through His hands of love that shape us everything that touches us. Ultimately, as God works it that way, tends toward creating in us the image of Christ. We are being conformed to Him. And so life is not primarily about happiness here and now. Life is primarily about holiness. But the people who are truly the most joyful and content and happy in life are the ones who understand the truth about which I am about to give you here and so he tells us that God's determination to do us good is rooted in eternity and is worked out in space and time that is to conform us to the image of his son so that we may share in his glory God loves his son so much that he wants to give his son the greatest gift a father could ever give to his son. And that is a bride, a bride that looks like him, a bride that loves his son, a bride that images him back to himself. Nothing in heaven and on earth can stop it. God will never abandon his purposes here. It is for our life that he will be about this process to it. So first, I want to look at five grounding convictions out of verse 28. And then five links in a golden chain. And then truth that we can take home from us, for us today. The first one is, God is at work. God is at work. Just as a potter shapes the clay. Just as an artisan engages in any art project. God is at work. And the word for work here is the word synergeo, which is the word synergy. God works with us. He's the one that works with us. Sometimes I like to imagine God as a jazz artist. Now, for some of you, you don't want to do that. But for me, I do. Because jazz has, what makes jazz so interesting to me is, you know, it's not three chords beaten on an E string. You know, that's what heavy metal is and all that kind of stuff. But jazz kind of goes somewhere. And it's improvisation. They're kind of making it up as they go along. They're kind of feeling it. And jazz has a lot of dissonance in it. has a lot of stuff that's not necessarily pleasant, not necessarily coherent always. Uh, It is in the mind of the player, maybe not in me, the mind of the listener. It it starts annoying me at some point when they start hitting these over and over. I can hardly take it. But eventually, most of it, if I listen to it more than once, resolves. God takes everything that comes into your experience. The good, the bad, your sin, your failures, your victories, your joys. He takes everything and weaves it together, improvs it together as a jazz artist and brings out the beauty in it. Um, there was a man who was a pastor of a church on a Navajo reservation, and it came Christmas time, and the women of the church had told him, do not go into the basement of the church. Well, you know, you're never going to go unless they tell you not to. But he did. And he saw that they were weaving for him a beautiful rug. And he walked in, he looked at it, and he saw it, and he said, that's about the ugliest thing I have ever seen. Look at it, it makes no sense. He's looking at it and he said, I'm going to have to work really hard to be gracious and accept this fine gift. Well, he was looking at the bottom side. And so on Christmas Day, they roll out this rug and they present it to him and then beautifully woven on the top side was God works everything good uh, uh, according to his purposes uh, for those he loves. And it was beautifully uh, woven into the uh, beautiful colors of the rug. He had seen it from the bottom side, which is where we see it. Because not everything that touches my life as a Christian is good. He's not saying everything is good. There's a lot of things that are good. What I get sick of hearing Christians say often is, Oh, I lost my job today, but that means God has a better job for me. Maybe not. Or uh, I was uh, in this relationship with this person, and, uh, you know, they dumped me, but God has a better person for me. Well, maybe not. I can't tell you everything's going to work out for you like you want it to in this world. I can't tell you that there won't be times that you will be grieving in the depths of your being, but wondering why have you allowed this to touch me? Why? I'm on your side. Why? Why did you allow this into my life? Why this suffering? Why this uh, hardship? Why this difficulty? Why? Why? But your story only makes sense in his larger story and that God has promised to work it for good and being good in essence only God intends for good and well-being as he defines it and the well-beingness of his definition is good. God knows what good is, and he's taking everything, no matter how crooked, no matter how unjust, no matter how horrible, or no matter how great, or glorious, or wonderful, he's taking it all, and accomplishing his purposes. And so that is a huge thing to know, as you live your life in this world. Otherwise, you'd go crazy. Crazy. And I hear people take a stab at it all the time. People that probably don't know the Lord. I don't know whether they do or not. It doesn't sound like they do. But they'll say things like this. Something bad happens and they'll go, well, I know there's a reason for it. And I want to go, what is the reason? Or they'll say, well, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? You've heard that. Or I've had some good karma. It's about time it evens up. Get some bad karma. Or others will stoically say, case arise, whatever will be, will be. Or the world famous, it is what it is. And my answer to that is, what else could it be? It is what it is. Or, I'm really going through a period of growth here. Personal growth. Or what hung on the locker room wall in my high school football locker room. No pain, what? No gain. And so people stab at it, and it's good that they do. And some of that is half-truth, but the whole truth is God is bigger than it all. And God is wiser than the wisdom of men, comprehensively considered. It is not even worthy to be compared. And in his wisdom, he is orchestrating every moment of your life with the intended goal to make You like Jesus. You have to understand this. Or you'll go crazy. You have to understand this. And he tells us. Panta in the Greek means all things. There's a a comprehensiveness here, something that is all-encompassing. Not everything that happens to us is good, but it becomes the raw material of God's uh, project. We don't respond in Stoicism, a, a stiff upper lip, or bite our lip, or we don't have a Pollyannish view of life. We don't get caught up in the victim or the victimizer. We don't get caught up in our sins, but we understand that what is going on will be fully realized at the consummation, and this knowledge fortifies us with courage in facing any situation knowing that God is at work. And He has a plan. He has a scheme. He has a project. But, this promise is attached to two, shall we say, important, I don't want to call them conditions, but they're sort of conditions. He says to those who love him, not a condition, but an identity. That is, we love him because he first loved us. So we don't earn this wonderful promise by loving him. We love him because he first loved us and our love for him is due to his calling us to salvation and the intention, initiative, and purpose of God is his in terms of loving us first. We're also people who are called according to his purpose. And here he's talking about what is called in theology the effectual call. It doesn't mean that God is pleading about and calling for us in an invitation to come to me. But rather, human beings can reject that kind of invitation. But the word called here is more like a summons that overcomes all human resistance and and, uh, persuades us to say yes. All the called are justified because calling creates faith. The foundational reason why God works all things together for good to the believer is God's unstoppable purpose and determination. And it cannot be frustrated. He employs all things to accomplish the plan that he has had from all eternity in the lives of those who believe. I am reminded, as I think about this, of one of the statements that my good buddy John Newton made. And he said this, I wrestle with this statement a lot, but I know it's true. He said, everything is necessary that God sends. And nothing can be necessary that he withholds. That means if we think we require some good thing that God has withheld from us, in reality, we do not absolutely need it. It also means that if we feel our life has been ruined by some bad thing, in reality, playing some very important role in your life, it is teaching you and molding you and enriching you and humbling you and so on. We learn to look at trouble in our lives as being not punishment from God, Not because he's angry with us, but rather part of his loving purposes for us. And understanding this gives us a very balanced view of suffering. Uh, It's hard to have a balanced view towards suffering. On the one hand, there are people who just despair when suffering comes in their life and say, nothing good can come out of this. The text denies that. On the other hand, there are people, including many Christians, who embrace suffering. They see it as a good thing to make them noble or to make them feel more virtuous than other people. That's called suffering righteousness. But the text does not say that the things are good, but that God works them for good. Difficulties are not to be enjoyed or welcomed. They are not good, but their results can be. Now. He does something here that is astounding. Because he's going to go in the next verses. Verses 29 and 30. And really talk about God's saving purpose. Through five stages. From its beginning in the mind of God. Before creation. To its consummation. In the coming glorious return of Jesus Christ. These stages he names. As foreknowledge. um, predestination, calling, justification, and glorification. First is the reference to God's foreknowledge, those whom he foreknew. Since the common meaning of foreknow in English is to know something beforehand in advance of its happening, some Scholars and even some commentators, both ancient and modern, have concluded that God foresees everyone who will ultimately believe and that his foreknowledge is the basis of his predestination. When I wasn't even a Christian, you know, I, I was the most brilliant theologian in the world. Because Somebody once asked me what predestination was. I said, well, that's something those dumb Presbyterians believe. I said, but basically what predestination is, is that God looks down the time tunnel. I wasn't even a Christian when I said this. God looks down the time tunnel. He sees what you're going to do, and he seconds the motion. He ratifies it. So really, God doesn't choose you. You choose him. He just sees it ahead of time and says he foreknows what you're going to do. That is so wrong. That is absolutely and totally wrong. Makes sense, but it's biblically wrong. Because the text does not say God foreknew what choices we were going to make. It says God foreknew what? People. People. What does it mean to foreknow a person? Well, I'm going to cut to the chase here since we only have limited time. But to foreknow a person means to know them in an intimate sense. It's much more than intellectual cognition. It denotes a personal relationship, a covenantal relationship uh, that is much more than intellectual it denotes a relationship of care and affection and love thus when God knows people he watches over them and when he knew the children of Israel in the desert what is meant is that he cared for them indeed Israel was the only people out of all the families of the earth whom Yahweh had known that is loved chosen formed a covenant with the meaning of foreknowledge in the New Testament is similar God did not reject his people whom he foreknew, that is, whom he loved and chose. In the light of the biblical usage, whom he foreknew is therefore virtually equivalent to whom he foreloved. Foreknowledge is God's sovereign, distinguishing love. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. But but it was because the Lord loved you. And the only source of divine election and predestination is love. What that means is that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have trusted in Him and Him only, who He is and what He's accomplished for you upon the cross and living a perfect life on your behalf. And if you are resting totally in Jesus, then what that says to you is, there has never been in the space of eternity a single moment when God did not set His love on you. I told you, the light gets blinding here a little bit. Even before you were a twinkle in your daddy's eye, even before creation was ever spoken into existence, God has set His heart on you and chosen you to be His. That's glorious. But He didn't just do that in eternity past. He did something else. He predestined you. He predestined you. God foreknew or foreloved. He also predestined you to be conformed to the likeness of his son. son. And I have seen a lot of people try to make predestination mean anything except what it means. But the verb predestination, proorizo in the Greek, means to decide upon beforehand. To decide upon beforehand. As in Acts 48. They did, that is the crucifixion. What your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Clearly then a decision is involved in the process of becoming a Christian. But it is God's decision before it can ever be ours. This is not to to deny that we can say we decided for Christ and we did that freely. But it is to affirm that we did so only because he first decided for us. What a powerful truth. The decision involved is ours. But it is the fruit of his decision for us. The emphasis on God's gracious and sovereign decision or choice is reinforced with the vocabulary which it is always associated. On the one hand, it is attributed to God's pleasure, to his will, to his plan, to his purpose. And on the other, it is traced back before the creation of the world. C.J. shows sums up the issue in these words, listen carefully. Everyone who is eventually saved can only ascribe his salvation from the first step to the last to God's favor and act. Human merit must always be excluded. And this can only be by tracing back the work far beyond the obedience which evidences or even the faith which appropriates salvation even to the act of spontaneous favor on the part of God who foreordains from all eternity his works. Neither scripture nor experience will ever allow us to weaken this teaching. Oh, I wish you could listen faster. Uh, J.I. Packer. In his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, points out the fact that all Christian people believe in God's sovereignty and salvation, even if they deny it. Two facts show this. He said, in the first place, who do you thank for your conversion? God. Now, why do you do that? Because you know in your heart that God was entirely responsible for it. You did not save yourself. He saved you. There's a second way in which you acknowledge that God is sovereign in salvation. You pray that God would save and convert other people. Why do you do that? Because you know he's the one and only one who can save by his power. Now there's more I could say about predestination and people take it to every extreme. But some people say predestination, well, that just fosters an arrogance. And uh, it is a mystery, granted, but the basis of predestination is never uh, anything we do. The basis of predestination is in the heart of God and what He does. And I have to tell you, every day I look at myself and I said, I wonder, how in the world could he ever love me the way he says he does? And the way I know he does. But I don't have time to get into refuting predestination. Talk to me later. Email me. Send me something. And I'll go further. Because I've got a lot more to do here. But those God predestined. Those he marked out beforehand. Those he decided upon in his grace. God owes salvation to no man or woman or anyone else. If we got what we deserved, we would forever be forsaken by God and punished in hell forever. That is what we deserved. But God in His great, large heart and mercy and compassion decided to save a people for Himself. And if you are a Christian, you are among that number. And you are totally and uh, forever secure in Jesus Christ. And when you're going through the rough times, when you're out on the sea and the ship's being tossed to and fro by the winds of every kind of trial and trouble in your life, the handle you can hang on to is that you have been loved by God from eternity to eternity, and you are His. You belong to Him. All of you. Now, Paul's third affirmation is those he predestined, he also called. And we've mentioned call earlier, that is, he calls us through the gospel. It is when the gospel is preached to them with power, that they respond to it with the obedience of faith. And then we know that God has chosen them. So the preaching of the gospel, far from being rendered superfluous by God's predestination, is indispensable. Because the preaching of the gospel is the very means God has ordained by which His call comes to His people and awakens their faith. How is His foreknowing you? How is His predestining you actualized in space, time, and history? It's when you hear the gospel, and you not only hear the words, you hear the music, and your heart is changed into a lover of Jesus. You are called. I tried to reason out how this was, and I don't know how Mo, uh, Noah got all the people on the uh, people, animals on the ark. Uh, a good friend of mine says, "Why didn't he swat those two mosquitoes while he had a chance?" But anyway, I don't know if he just called out horse, and there were a bunch of horses around, and two of them came. Why? Because they were chosen. They came. One of the reasons I get up here and do what I do every week is not because I think I'm anything. I know I'm nothing. And not because I think I'm so persuasive or so smart. I know I'm not. But here's what I do know. God is the one who saves. And he will take a crooked stick like me and make a straight line. And as I preach his gospel, the power of the gospel comes forth. And it makes new people. I see it happen all the time. I see people changed by the power of his word as he calls us out. But the most interesting thing to me, well, I ain't going to skip justification. You know how much I love that. He not only calls us, but in His act of calling us, He creates faith within us as a gift. God's effective call enables us to hear it, to believe it, to trust in it, and we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Justification is God's declaration that we, upon the basis of the person and work of Jesus Christ, are under His favor and right with Him forever. We're not waiting on court to occur. We're not waiting on judgment to be rendered. It has already been rendered by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And we are right with him forever because of what Jesus has done. I think it's interesting that the next word is glorification. And let me give you a little Greek here. It's in the aorist tense. That is, those he also justified. Those he what? Glorified. Past Action. Completed. He's saying what? You're already glorified. Right? In the mind of God. It's over. You will be glorified. You will be as an heir of Jesus Christ. You will bear the family resemblance because you're an adopted child, but you also Jesus Christ is our elder brother. And we will share in his likeness. And the writer here, Paul, doesn't talk about sanctification because I really believe verse 28 is about sanctification. He doesn't need to include it, but he jumps ahead to glorification and says, it's done. You will ultimately. Be like Jesus. What a glorious thing. People have noticed that sanctification is not mentioned. Yet it's implicitly here. But here is the Apostles series of five undeniable affirmations. God is pictured as moving irresistibly from stage to stage. From eternal foreknowledge and predestination through a historical call and justification to a final glorification of his people and a future eternity. It resembles a chain of five links, each of which is unbreakable. Now, okay, pastor, I've been listening, and I've been trying to absorb what you're saying. What can I take home with me? I'm actually going to use a summary by John Newton, but he stole it from somebody named the late Mr. Hervey, and I'm stealing it from him. Or we're handing it down, maybe that's a better way to say it. If his bullet will fit my gun, I will fire it every time. Now, what are three things we can take home with us? Number one, knowing what I just preached to you should not ever puff you up. It should humble your socks off. It should break you. It should humble you. And it's it's intended by the Word of God to humble the sinner. And to fall in line with the Lord's perverse design. To stain the pride of all human glory. This and this alone stops every mouth as to boasting and leaves the soul nothing to glory in but the Lord. How prone are men by nature to set value upon something as outward privileges or natural gifts and talents or moral character or diligent endeav- endeavor, as if the Lord is indebted to us or gifts and labors. But when the soul is stripped of everything and sees the foundation of hope and begins to taste that the Lord is good and that the Lord is gracious, how does a view of foreknowledge and sovereignty humble? When all these texts so mortifying to human pride are asserted, we repeat the words like this, why me, Lord, why me? Why was I made to hear your voice And enter while there's room, when thousands make a wretched choice, and rather starve than come. Twas the same love that made me feast, that sweetly forced us in. Else we had still refused to taste, and perished in our sin. The second thing I want you to take home with you, is whatever humbles the sinner always exalts the Savior. And that is a consequence of this truth. The more we sink in our own esteem, the more excellent and glorious Jesus will appear. Why do so many see no form or loveliness in him? Because they are well satisfied in themselves. The whole may give the physician a good word, but the sick alone know how to prize him. And here I can but remark a difference between those who have nothing to trust to but free grace and, and such as ascribe a little at least to some good disposition in man. We assent to, many, to admire many things that they say are the subject of sanctification. We acknowledge its importance, its excellence, its beauty. But we wish they could join more with us in exalting the Redeemer's name. Nothing makes you love Jesus more than understanding the great truth we have just considered. And finally, nothing promotes perseverance and the practice of holiness more. When we have a sense of our own insufficiency, we will trust in Him with a greater zeal. We will experience love to Jesus. He tells us that uh, Christ turns us from love of self to love toward Him and our neighbor. We'll have a growing sense of dependence upon Him. And we'll have our, a full persuasion from God's Word that our labor will never be in vain. And so that is the glorious story of His great work in us. Called, justified, glorified. Believers are assured that God's works... will work everything toward good as he sees it. Because God has set his covenantal affection upon us. He has marked us out to be like his son. He has called us effectually to himself through the gospel and justified us. And will most certainly without any doubt glorify us. All suffering and affliction of the present area, Are not an obstacle to ultimate salvation but the means by which that salvation will be accomplished so one of the great biblical foundations for change is to recognize what is the goal of change and so considering the span of eternity past to eternity future considering our life in space and time what is it all about from God's point of view it is totally about making you and me like Jesus let's pray Heavenly Father we have waited in some of the deeper waters today we pray that you would give us understanding in these things and that we would see that these are some of the greatest blessed truths we could ever know We thank You for uh, giving us this foundation uh, as we continue our walk and our journey with You. Help us remember frequently that this is the point of the present time. This is why You don't take us to heaven the moment we believe. It's because You have work to do. Now, Father, we thank You for Your faithfulness and we pray... That as we give today, we would give as those who are grateful for these great doctrines of grace. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.